1: Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate, Rewind and Rewatch Episode 7, covering Open the Northern Gate. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find our podcast as a part of the Voices of Wrestling feed, or on the dedicated Open the Voice Gate feed on every podcast platform and app of your choice. We're on Twitter, at Open Voice Gate. I'm one of your hosts, it's your old pal Iron Mike Spears, and I'm joined, as always, by my co host Case Low and Case. We might be covering what could be considered a B-show, but there are no B-shows in the Rewind and Rewatch series. Some new markets work, some
2: new markets don't. Dragon USA will tell you that themselves, but Mike <laughs> and I are here today to open the Northern Gate, the, what is it, the seventh show in the Dragon Gate USA catalog. It's, uh, you know, things are happening. It's an interesting point in a promotion that is less than a year old and yet it feels entirely different than the promotion that we started watching a mere two months ago
1: yeah yeah i know we talked about this on episode six about how there there does feel like to be like a distinct era and then like a rebuilding period and then like a new era but this one does kind of feel like okay this is mostly what this era of dg usa was so it might have been a failure on the uh, DGUSA side for Open the Northern Gate, but we definitely, for like the viewer and for us, we definitely got more of a centralized view of what Gabe Sapolsky was doing in Dragon Gate USA by the time they hit Windsor, Canada on May 7th. Oh, wow. That's actually, as the time we're recording this, almost exactly 10, 10 years to the day. We are. Yeah, it
2: was nice, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Kind of nice little bit of synchronicity, but... Yeah, so we're back here. We're out of WrestleMania weekend. We're we're going to be fast-forwarding to May from late March. We do have a bunch of notes that we want to get into, first case. So I think we should probably just get started with, okay, now yeah. Dragon Gate has left. That Everyone left Arizona. We, we talked last time about the departures of the Young Bucks and Brian Kendrick, and now we're starting to build up what's going to be this core roster, especially as... Dragon Gate USA has their first birthday. You know, you bury the lead there by saying
2: that Dragon Gate USA is no longer with the Young Bucks and Brian Kendrick, leaving out Davey Richards, who we discussed we discuss on for episodes. an hour well, a yeah, few weeks ago. Uh, I'm also going to hang you out to dry as my broadcast partner, and I deeply apologize, but before we can hit... May 7th and May 8th, the Toronto Double Shot. We actually have to go back before Phoenix. We begin the timeline on March 2nd, 2010 when Drangate USA is excited to announce a partnership with Maximum Pro Wrestling. This alliance has paved the way for DGUSA to present its first events in Canada. They will happen on in Windsor, Ontario on May 7th and the greater Toronto area on May 8th and these events will feature a deep talent roster including the DGUSA debut of Pac. Gabe policy goes on to to say in the march 2nd newswire maximum pro wrestling is the uh amalgamation i don't know if i said that word right but i'm going to go with it of two of canada's largest independent wrestling organizations border city wrestling and bse pro they have entertained thousands of fans throughout canada and the eastern united states since 1993 with some of the biggest names in professional wrestling both past and present so we have a bit of a partnership here. Uh, you know, Gabe had extended the Olive Branch to Chikara in the early days. Chikara is still hanging around. We saw uh, some quasi-Lucha partnership in the Phoenix shows. We've seen Gabe work with AAW when they're in Chicago. They are now extending the Olive Branch to Maximum Pro Wrestling, a Scott demore led organization On March 2nd, and the main event is announced for the first show, the Open the Northern Gate show, on March 29th. It has opened the Freedom Gate champion BB Hulk and the debuting Pac against Open the Dream Gate champion Yamato and Shingo Takagi representing Kamikaze USA. Mike, before we talk about that, we also need to talk about the King of Gate tournament that was happening in Japan at the time. I'm going to read you. The televised matches from King of Gate 2010. You tell me if any of these sound appealing to you. We start off on April 3rd, Kobe Sambo Hall. We have Dragon Kid defeating Kagatora, Gamma defeating Naruki Doi, Masaki Mochizuki defeating Yamato, Masato Yoshino defeating Shima, and then the next day, April 4th, in KBS Hall in Kyoto, Shingo Takagi defeating Sugawara, Kanes defeating Yokosuka, Genki Horiguchi defeating Don Fuji. BB Hulk defeating Cyber Kong, and that leads us to the semifinals and the finals of the King of Gate tournament in 2010 Cork and Hall, April 14th. Dragon Kid defeats Masato Yoshino, which certainly sounds familiar. Shingo Takagi defeats BB Hulk, and in the finals of the 2010 King of Gate tournament, Shingo defeats Dragon Kid. Mike, I just threw a lot of information <laughs> at you. What are your thoughts? on King of Gate 2010, and the promotion Dragon Gate proper in Japan at the time. How, how do you feel about this time period?
1: So, at this time period, we were kind of talking about a it li- a little bit on the earlier episodes in 2009, but this really is them putting the final pieces in place before they blow everything up and then do Blood Warriors versus Junction Free for the next few years. So, this was, like, a really interesting tournament, especially considering they took... 2009 off because of the generation warfare so first new tournament in two years and really when you like look at this roster a lot of people that you would expect on it of course is 16 man knockout tournament it's a, something that they used to do it this style a lot more and they're moving back to it this year but you look at at least at, like how things are booked and how people are being portrayed in this thing so you have uh J just the first thing that screams out to me, and I'm certain I watched these shows like at the time, but I'm just trying to remember things exactly. BB Hulk puts down Cyber Kong in five minutes, which is <laughs> something. Uh it's something we have seen
2: before and could very easily see again at some point. Yeah. Dragon Gate loves that sprinty Hulk versus Kong match for whatever reason.
1: Right, yeah. And then you look at the rest of the first round, I mean, this we're getting towards uh, with deep drunkers, and especially when we when we talk about Dead or Alive 2010, there is a kind of like deep drunkers was already in its very weird place. I mean, this is this was the newest unit, It was a heel unit, and it was no more than four months old at this time. And one of the nominal leaders, uh, Kunitsu Rai, not in the tournament. Takuya Sugawara, a part timer, out in the first round, and then the rest of it. I mean, after what happened with Shingo, with his first tile run, and then everything that happened with him in 2009, everything was really kind of set up here with uh, him winning King of Gate. And it's worth noting for people who've recently went on or recently have become a Dragon Gate fans. The winner at King of Gate did not always challenge at Kobe world, and it wouldn't be the case in 2010. Shingo would have his match against Yamato at dead or alive. And I guess it would have been three weeks time after that. So interesting how they really built it up here. And Something also worth noting as we go through these shows, and especially as a parallel of DG, the main event at Kobe World was Yamato versus uh, Masato Yoshino. We're moving our way towards that slowly. And you can see it, especially with how it's booked, and especially how Yoshino's booked in DG USA, that that's happening. But really, other than that, just like up and down, like not a huge surprise, you have Nesca in the first round in the longest match of the tournament, which is something that. When Kness was back at this time, and we'll be talking a little bit more about Neska, he was a lot of fun, and that one was the one match I kind of remember from this as being an interesting match, given that Nesca were the Lone Wolf tag team that was existing. And soon later that summer, they would join World 1 for its last few months, but it was just kind of an interesting thing to see at the time.
2: Since we're on the topic of Dragon Gate proper, let's actually flash forward to May 5th, which is the day we're recording this. So exactly 10 years ago today, Dragon Gate, Dead or Alive, 2010. This show did not feature a cage match. There was no cage match uh, in Dragon Gate in all of 2010, but I believe it was 2014 when the cage match tradition began because 2009 you have it at Final Gate, 2011 you you have it at Gate of Destiny, Unless my memory serves me incorrect, there was nothing in 2012 or 2013. No. And then we began
1: Dead or Alive as we know it in 2014. Well, 2012, of course, has the notorious Shima versus Cyber Kong match,
2: which is on the Dragon Gate Network now. Yeah. Uh, if you have St- not seen. Co starred by Larry Dallas. <laughs> uh, Larry Dallas, our, our compadre at Ringside, Shima and Cyber Kong in. What is it? I watched it over the weekend for the first time in years because I just, you know, I hadn't had access to the show. I had no reason to watch it. I watched that main event. It is one of the, not only the worst Dragon Gate matches in history, it is one of the weirdest. It's so strange. There's times in that match, and I don't even fault him because the match is a disaster. Normally I would say, well, there should be some semblance of professionalism, but not when you're in the midst of a debacle like this. There's times in that match where you can just see Shima is so visibly upset at what's (laughs) happening and you would see it in his eyes. And then he would beat cyber Kong to pieces for the 30 seconds of just kicking him like toe to skull. And then he would reset it, but it was just constantly throughout the match. Shima getting more and more fired up, exploding, calling himself back down. And then uh, it's, it is a special kind of disaster that luckily was not present on dead or alive. 2010.
1: Yeah, no, dead or alive. 2012, definitely worth watching like you, you. Everyone should put themselves through the that main event once, so they get why people like me and you are like, yeah, Cyber Kong, not necessarily singles match guy all the time. But like, you have DK versus Ricochet on that show. You have, you, you have the original Jimmys versus Mochi Fuji. Like, it's a great show. Like, there's a lot of great stuff on there. But they're like 2010. This is one of those like key shows that did a lot to kind of set forth how the company would be for the remainder of the decade. I'm just uh, running down the card for folks. The main event, Shingo was getting his Dreamgate shot because he won King of Gate. He lost the Yamato in 31 minutes, 35 seconds. There was a match that we don't see a lot that I missed. the All Out War-Nanawa eight-man tag elimination match, which th- there used to be a lot of different style of elimination matches. Nanawa was the most common one. And that was World One versus uh, Warriors. You had Doi Do- Hulk, and Naoki Tanizaki versus Shima Gamma, Genki, Horguchi, and Rio Saito. No DQ three way tag team match for the dr- three way tag team match for the uh, Open the Triangle Gate Championship. I don't know why they say it's a three way match when there's only two sides, unless I'm blanking on something. But that was when Deep Drunkers Sugawara Kanda and KZ defeated the Chose v- Veterans, and we bid farewell to Bono. Tiger's Mask defended the uh, defeated Dragon Kid for the Brave Gate. Fun match. And then we're getting some matches that would really kind of affect our story today. So I'm going to skip over the big one. We have the uh, the televised debut. I actually went back and checked to make sure that it was right. Of One, Takuya Tomahawkomai. I mispronounced that wrong. Takuya Tomakomai. Toma-ko-mai. There's a reason
2: he would change his name yes. to...
1: T-Hawk. Or, and t- and t- Tomahawk T-T. Just terrible first name for him. He was named for his hometown there. De- versus Super Shisa, Nesca versus Tokyo Gurantai, Nosawa, Rongai, and Masada. But there's one match case that we really need to highlight here. And that's Cyber Kong defeating Akira Tozawa where the loser returns to the dark matches. Indeed,
2: indeed. Akira Tozawa's career was about to drastically change, and we kind of knew something was up, because on April 12th, 2010, Shima revealed on his Twitter that Akira Tozawa will make his DGUSA debut on May 7th and May 8th. Gabe Zapolski says, Shima sees him as a top-rising star in Dragon Gate, which is funny for a number of reasons that we will talk about in just a minute. Also on April 12th, Johnny Gargano uh, is announced for the shows. So on April 12th, Gabe Zapolski says uh, he asks for the attention of the Windsor and Toronto fans and says the DGUSA now has its greatest ticket offer yet. Second and third row tickets for both the May 7th and May 8th shows have been discounted until this Wednesday. I don't know what day this was released, but the deal expired on a Wednesday. These are the biggest discounts we will offer, and once they are gone, they won't return. So it should be noted that this is the first really poor weekend Dragon Gate USA had had. I'm sure from a business perspective, but also just optically, these shows looked really poor because at this point, they're running the ECW Arena and they're running the Congress Theater in Chicago exclusively, with the exception of Phoenix, which was WrestleMania weekend. So for this first show, it's reported the Japanese side reported 380 tickets. Uh, the American side, or I guess rather the realistic attendance was 200 reported by Dave Meltzer in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. So it's it's the first signs we see of an uh-oh. This this is maybe not as financially viable as we thought it was, and we're less than a year into the promotion.
1: Yeah, and the the thing that I've been asking our listeners to remember was originally the the tickets they wanted to sell were about 500. When they moved to the double shots, they said 350. This show... I Meltzer reports about two 100 to 200 200 is probably generous like I would guess probably about 150 people there and this is something that we'll talk more about the next night in Miss on the next episode this is the roughest weekend of DG USA business to date and that's why we had that that great video clip that you were just talking about <laughs> and the one riffing on earlier that you know they've Apparently tickets were super expensive To fly them all into Detroit Then drive them across the border I've always wondered why people fly into Detroit Versus flying into Toronto I guess it's cheaper But yeah this was a uh, Kind of a, a big sign of like this weekend And I think this might have been something at the time Where I kind of was like Oh these shows aren't going to be anything Even though my favorite wrestler in Dragon Gate Was making his big debut in Akira Tozawa It just was very stark And, when you, and while y'all watch the shows It's very obvious Like the venue sucks. The attendance sucks. It's just a bad situation and pretty much set up for a really weird night in, uh, in Windsor, Canada on Mar- on May 7th. It looks
2: drastically different than Open the Historic Gate last July, which leads us to our next note, which is on April 15th in the DGUSA Newswire. It's been one year of DGUSA.TV, so we're now entering... I guess, year two of existence of Drangate USA, even though the anniversary show is in July. The company was announced on April 15th, 2009. April 15th, 2010, they celebrate their first anniversary, and they are on the road to Toronto. But before... We can talk about drawing it. USA. Let's pivot to the greater independent scene as a whole. On the April 17th, 2010 PW Torch, there is a note that Ring of Honor champion Tyler Black says the ROH locker room has decided to drop chair shots to the head and to try to limit headshots in the ring as much as possible to protect wrestlers. I just found this note interesting because this certainly seems like something, uh, and you know, you're obviously very close to the situation, to AEW that a decade later is still somehow a topic that is discussed among wrestling fans and people within the wrestling industry.
1: Yeah, and I think now, in retrospect, we've all seen what companies somewhat take this seriously, what companies haven't taken it seriously, and just how wrestling's adapted over the past decade. I remember this being a thing. Like, I definitely remember like, everyone talking, like, okay, because this was really when CTE was becoming a, a much bigger issue. Of course, there were a lot of pretty nasty headshots on earlier uh dg usa shows and i don't think that Gabe ever makes a comment about that but yeah wrestler welfare at this point i mean we're really like and i think we might talk about it either on this show or next show but wrestling industry at this point like this is still in some really kind of dark days i mean when you look at like the greater scheme of things within the last like four years all the people that had were involved in the mini boom of like 2002 to 2006 are virtually gone and now like everything is like taking a step back and then you have this added in as well i remember also there was an incident like with wrestler health around lindsay dorado around this time i've been a couple years before about him almost breaking his neck in a match and having like bad uh doctors at ringside at that time so this was this was kind of like the start of this as a topic that i mean still i mean we're dealing with this day, like how we talked about on the episode about open the ultimate gate and and about the big davy richards things about how that really set up how wwn and ring of honor would be two distinct islands for a long time and that set up pwg as a place to thrive this is something that i still think the wrestling industry still is coming to terms with
2: Ring of Honor continued their action in the ring on April 3rd with the Big Bang Eye pay-per-view, a truly bizarre show that was featured it it, it <laughs> <features> our favorite <laughs> Davey Richards versus Kenny King is the opener in a match that was billed at the time as the future of Ring of Honor. I think if you would have booked this match in 2008, it would have been booked as the future of Ring of Honor. And I think even though he was our weight champion at the time, if you would have booked this in 2012, it would have been booked as (laughs) the future of ring of honor. There's something about Davey Richards versus Kenny King, and it's maybe a larger issue with the wrestling industry as a whole is that we're, In the moment, we're always saying these guys are the future instead of saying that these guys are the present. But Davy Richards versus Kenny King reeks of 2010 message board comments of these guys are the future. Also on the show, you see Kevin Steen and Steve Carino versus Cole Cabana and El Generico in their first official two versus two tag. We see a triple threat match between Tyler Black, Austin Aries, and Roderick Strong. And the main event of the show is Mysterioso and Super Parka versus Blue Demon Jr., And Magno, so Dragon Gate USA is not the only promotion with a weird lucha relationship at the time. It is equally as strange in Ring of Honor.
1: Yeah, so a couple notes on this: Uh, this was built as so they did a final battle for 2009 as their first ever eye pay per view on Go Fight Live. I believe we talked about it at the time. We did, yes, we did. So this one was explicitly Go Fight Live and. The buys from this, I I don't know if you have this in your notes, but I have it. That was about 900 buys on, a, on iPay-Per-View for the show that they were building this thing up as like a huge kind of like this is the next era of Ring of Honor. We will have the Big Bang, at the the Grady Cole Center in uh, Charlotte, which is still a venue that Ring of Honor will run sometimes. Like it's a larger venue at the time. Did not sell very many tickets, spent a lot of money in local next promotion. Like this was like a time where people were like, okay – we got to get the Lucha fan in. and I guess from the time because I remember this is something that I've like talked about like especially now, current day with Rush and Dragon Lee and Ring of Honor. like Why don't they during this time of rebuilding, why don't they focus on this? Maybe it was that they were all scared away because no one's going to really go to a show. It does have Blue Demon Jr. who is a certifiable star and is viewed in some circles as a legend but he's a ticket seller. Like He's someone to push the tickets. Dragon Gate USA had LA Park, another person that's Certifiable Legend, Ticket Seller. Maybe they were all scared away from that from this point, and they never really like pushed that again, because it just was such an abrupt thing, and like they did this here. I remember it being like a thing that everyone was like, well, why is this Lucha Tag main eventing? And it just was a very weird show. I remember, this might not have been one of the shows that Go Fight Live went down, but that would start to become a recurring issue. Oh, and was...
2: I guarantee Go Fight Live went down during this, because the terrible service on Go
1: Fight Live. Terrible service. I mean... Go Fight Live would be such an issue that when we're even talking about like the 2012 uh, Wrestlemania weekend shows was a big issue with Go Fight Live at the time. Everything's so much better now than how things were used to be with pay Review. And Dave wrote a lot about the idea about IAPA Reviews and The Observer around this time about well, this is before Chromecasts or about Apple TV, so people would be plugging their HDMI cables in. It just was... It took a long time to actually get the, this per Review service to something that's actually usable and watchable and somewhat convenient and this was not the time for that
2: one other quick ring of honor note on april 24th on the back half of a double shot ring of honor hit chicago ridge illinois for bitter friends stiffer enemies 2 which featured davy richards versus roderick strong chris hero challenging uh tyler black for the roh world title in a no dq match between kevin steen and steve carino versus El Generico and Colt Cabana, which led to a note in the May 8th torch, which is a little past the show, it's a day past, but I'll bring it up here, that all four men were fined by Ring of Honor for chair shots to the head. So despite Tyler Black's rallying call, uh, those four men, the renegades of Ring of Honor at the time, did not heed Tyler Black's warning. They were fined by
1: the company. But does anyone even today listen to Tyler Black slash Seth Rollins? History repeats itself, as I think I've said on a show before. Uh it has happened before and it will happen again. Balsar Galactica predicted wrestling. I don't know
2: what to say to that so I will move <laughs> on to our final notes. <laughs> Mike is is trying to throw nerd shit my way, and I am slapping that out of here. Not in my house, Mike. (laughs) Should be noted, April 17th, John Moxley captured the vacant, because it was held by Davy Richards, the vacant full (laughs) impact pro heavyweight title from Roderick Strong in Crystal River, Florida. That was at the Southern Stampede 2010 show. He beat Roderick Strong. And then on April 20th, DG USA Newswire, Mike Quackenbush, who has been at odds with Yamato since the first event, has officially announced the Chikara Sekigun faction, which featured quackenbush jigsaw and hollow wicked who was originally booked on these shows but had to pull out due to a shoulder injury and then there's a note about john moxley officially a forming uh, officially forming kamikaze usa with shingo takagi yamato granakuma and now akira tozawa that leads us to one quick note about shikara which mike can take from here this comes uh on april 23rd 2010 from the lucha blog slash cubs fan website
1: yeah so the, this is an important thing to note because this involves someone that is intrinsic to Dragon System and Chikar history. At this time, this was April twenty third was the first night of King of Trios twenty ten, and we were talking about this before we started recording that this was really one of the first shows that like, King of Trios was really kind of get going like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, but two thousand ten really was kind of like the stamp on it year where. Mike Quackenbush would book a lot of international talent. On this weekend, he would bring in Team Osaka Pro, so Atushi, Katoge, Daisuke, Harada, Daisuke, uh, Team Big Japan of Daisuke Sakamoto, Kankiro Hoshino, and Yuji Bayashi And he booked a bunch of lucha wrestlers. And his big lucha contact at this time, naturally, was Skyda. And at this time, when it was announced on the show that there was going to be two lucha teams, the first one was Team Peros Del Mall, of course, that was a big promotion that kind of played it into the WrestleMania weekend stuff since Paris the Mall were the people who got the lucha pay-per-view contract of G Funk that was supposed to be airing on opposite months as DG USA. But so Paris Mall had El Abarije, who is better known now as Cranio, Cuhe, and El Oriental, who's someone who worked a lot in Chikara at that time. Like he was kind of their first big international wrestler. But more importantly, there was a team. Mexico that was originally going to be Jorge Skyda Rivera. Turbo who if you're someone who's watched a lot of Dragon Gate you've seen a bunch of Turbo. Turbo was kind of uh, Jorge's big uh, Skyda's big uh, protege over in in both Mexico and he would bring him over to Dragon Gate. Yeah Jorge Rivera did a lot of Dragon Gate tours uh, in 2008-2009 and then also Valiente of CMLL. So what happened was and Cubs fan does a great job of kind of covering the beat by beat was that on the 22nd the company announced that both Valiente and turbo were off the event and as a result they were severing all ties with uh, jorge skyder rivera who was in charge of bringing those two to the event and who reportedly held the, t- the company up for more money despite delivering on Valiente and turbo who already took in bookings elsewhere that weekend and there was a lot of back and forth the cubs fan i think has like the most like two sides it uh, tells like both sides basically the idea was that at the airport uh skyda went silent and then called quack and said we're not coming i told the other guys not coming unless you pay me this much extra money which is kind of remarkable considering at the time Valiente was a cmll wrestler and skyda and Turbo have been pretty much career-long independents. so the idea of Valiente even taking this booking amongst lucha circles was always kinda of had a raised eyebrow with and then there was also a thing that Quack then said he tried to get Peros the Mall not to show up, but of course they did and they would continue that relationship. And then it turns into a whole lot of he said, he said, where Quack brought up the fact that he offered to be the go-between for Chikara to get tracksuits and masks and he said I think the figure in the Cubs fan article, I don't have it pulled up in front of me right now, was nineteen hundred dollars was number thrown that quack claim that skyda went away with and then also the reason why i say this article is important it has uh uh gigolo americano who is all, who is someone who actually got quack and bush in contact with skyda who countered with like how quack and bush allegedly was treating skyda when he was a trainer at Chicara. this would kind of have very wide reaching things jorge skyda rivera would never come back to dragon gate usa he's actually not really done a whole lot of things within like the greater dragon system since this moment and i don't know if it was something that quack with the k- kibosh on i'm just projecting here maybe there was some connection there allegedly maybe that's just something that kind of would make sense turbo wouldn't be brought back into dragon gate as well and then it just kind of at this point was a big moment because skydo kind of was for a while leading up to that dg usa show and even in going to the uh fearless show was a feature member of the roster and they kind of really built on the idea that chikara was linked to dragon gate and the dragon system through skyda who was the secondary slash primary instructor of everyone at ultimo dragon gym at Torreón, mexico basically up until 2006 after dos caras didn't do as much training in like 98 99 so this was a really big moment and i know that this is something that like reading now seems like wow this is what really happened but Skyda, really, at that point, like, since then, like, he still appears. I think he actually appears a lot at at, at Gala or Galley in Chicago. Like, I know he's appeared there and he appears in California. But for the most part, Skyda, you know, this was kind of the end of Skyda in the United States, at least for primarily non-Lucha watchers.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a situation that has ripple effects throughout wrestling, kind of whether you realize it or not at the time, because – You know, quite honestly, it's not like Quackenbush and the Chikara gang stick around for all that much longer in Drangate USA. Right. So there's really – there's no way to say what affected what, but if this somehow seeped its way into the lives of Gabe Sapolsky and the Drangate USA system, it would not surprise me. And with that in mind, Mike, are you ready to open the Northern
1: Gate? Oh, buddy. I've never been more prepared to open the Northern Gate. (laughs) So – this is again from May seventh, twenty ten, from the Windsor Armory in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. Commentary by Lenny Leonard and Jake Carson. They finally dropped the Chakarson thing. Have you noticed? Did you notice that while watching I d- this? I did not notice that, but I'm glad you mentioned that because that is funny to me. <laughs> Attendance two hundred, and uh, we open up the show with Lenny Leonard and Jimmy Jacobs talking about Kamikaze USA and about how now it seems to be that all these Dragon Gate units are looking for Western wrestlers so that they could, they could join up with and also more so that they can do more promos because Gabe needed to have promos in his wrestling. Uh, Jimmy refused to join a-, a stable, but he said, no matter what, I'm ready to fight John Moxley, and I'm ready to face someone like Shima to prove my worth as a man. I wrestled in tag teams, I've wrestled in stables, but I've never really wrestled by myself, and I want to wrestle by myself. I thought this was a pretty effective kind of cold open that they had here.
2: Yeah, Jimmy Jacobs is a super good promo. I, I liked this. I still am not in love with the idea of beginning Dragon Gate USA DVDs with a Jimmy Jacobs promo right. with Lenny Leonard. I think it's it's they're they're both incredibly talented. It's not a shot at them. I just think it's way too similar to sapolsky era ROH, and I wish they would have deviated from that.
1: Yeah, and like this is kind of him going back to his what I would consider his tried tried and true. Like, having the cold opening, like, Lenny does a great job there, and Jimmy, as you said, is a great promo. But it just was kind of, like, okay here. Uh, what was your thoughts about, like, how open and transparent they are about, hey, we need to get someone who, like, primarily speaks English on the microphone?
2: It's something that uh, happens really throughout the show, and it's stuff that we'll talk about next week in the notes as well, that there is a clear push to get more Americans on these cards. I understand why. I mean, I get it. I, If I was a fan at the time, assuming I was a fan of both promotions, both uh, DG Proper and then Dragon Gate USA, I would maybe not be crazy about it because to me, you know, I want to watch the Dragon Gate guys. But for a number of reasons, financially, logistically, charismatically, if we're talking about promos, they needed a strong core of Americans. And that was starting to be built up with Brian Kendrick, the Young Bucks and Davey Richards and TJP, quite honestly, to some extent. Those guys are all gone now. Those are five Americans that Sapolsky was building this promotion around in some way, shape, or form, and they are wiped out after Phoenix. So, I think it, the promotion was heading in that direction, anyways. But we see a really drastic turn now of like, oh, we need Americans and we need Americans to a point that we're going to make it a storyline. So I, I, I'm okay with it.
1: Yeah, and like, if you're looking at this like from a pure like financial, like how did this company really did. They had 10 plane tickets on this show from Japan from Kobe uh, or from the night after dead or alive going to Toronto, then going up here. So that's, this might end up being other than WrestleMania weekend, their most expensive set of shows that they ran at least up to this point. So I get why this happened at the time. I was like, well, okay, you know, like John Moxley, of course, like fit in really well. And then they came in Kamikaze USA. I was like, okay, that's right. That's all right, I got it. But this kind of becomes like the major storyline, at least through kind of the formation of Ronin. So like this is, we talked about the group that would future be called uh, Kamikaze USA. This is kind of like the first seeds to Roman, to Roman, I'm sorry, Ronin when this (laughs) happened. So yeah, this was kind of like an interesting thing and definitely like uh, the changing the gears to this new era. After that, we had a recurring thing that would happen in the show. Sadly, there would not be as many backstage, awkward, pensive Yoshino videos as we had before, but we would have the, revisiting the Yoshino versus Dragon Kid feud, of course, starting off with their first match at Open Historic Gate, where, hey, Case, remember Too Cold Scorpio cutting, cutting a really long, rambling promo? I do, I do indeed. So that was that, and then we opened up the show on pay-per-view. We had a dark match of Kyle O'Reilly defeats Brent B that did not make either the cut here and i don't i went back and i tried to see what the bonus dvd was i did not see it on the bonus dvd either so it
2: did not air at all to my knowledge
1: yeah so the first match we have in the ring the first match of the show proper was chikara Sekigun of jigsaw and mike quackenbush defeating the team of kamikaze usa of akira tozawa and granakuma and akira tozawa's north american debut however the fall would be uh jigsaw doing a uh Doing basically a really cool thing where they went from the Yoshi tonic that Granikuma was trying to attempt and he just dropped right down his head for the uh, jig and tonic and onto Granikuma to get the win in 14 minutes and 11 seconds. I had a really good time in this match. Even though this is a really weird show and one of the worst venues they had, this was a really fun show.
2: Yeah, it's a really fun opener. Let's talk for a second just about Akira Tozawa because from here until we end the show— Until we end this Rewind and Rewatch series, Tozawa is going to be a focal point for, if not our news and notes, for the show as itself. I can't imagine we have another episode where Akira Tozawa's name doesn't come up. So, just to frame the perspective of who akira tozawa was at the time because it's a far cry from the wwe superstar that we obviously now know and obviously love
1: (laughs) uh he's doing great things uh Uh, did you see the results (laughs) last night guys i don't know oh god no i did not (laughs) uh there was a a, y'all know when we're recording this there was a um gauntlet match with bobby lashley going through a bunch of people take a guess how long the match of akira tozawa lasted yeah
2: 30 seconds
1: 12
2: I I hate Vince McMahon so much. But anyways, Akira Tozawa debuts in 2005. He is the third student of the Drangate Dojo. It's often said, and it's true, that Tozawa is the first Black Tights young boy that Drangate has because Shingo debuts as kind of the Crazy Max helper and is uh, immediately pushed. B.B. Hulk debuts with a Magnum Tokyo-produced entrance and gimmick, and he's immediately pushed. Akira Tozawa is... A Black Tights young boy, but also is pushed to some extent and has a character that I think gets lost in the in the history of Dragon USA because he's a ring boy for a lot of M2K matches at this time, and M2K's feuding with Blood Generation and. Akira Tozawa's fighting with Don Fuji during a lot of these matches, and Akira Tozawa has not debuted at this point. He's just a ring boy who's leading guys to the ring. Eventually in Cork and Hall, Fuji throws Tozawa into the ring, and Tozawa lands a dropkick on Don Fuji and then runs to the back. It's a phenomenal angle that I just rewatched. And then from there, Tozawa hits the ground running to some extent. I mean, I'm going back and watching everything that's out there from 2005 right now. Akira Tozawa was really good from the, his debut on. I mean, he he's just a fun wrestler. And now 15 years later, it's very clear that like, Oh, I see how this guy became as good as he was because he had these raw tools to work with. But, not everything goes swimmingly for Akira Tozawa. Mike, how did we get from this young guy who's attacking Don Fuji to Kamikaze USA member Akira Tozawa? What happened in between
1: there? So this is a very close subject to me. I'm on record cases, you know, Akira Tozawa is my favorite wrestler ever, pretty much. Like I am someone that as soon as, like, I was originally a BB Hulk guy when I first got into Dragon Gate, but as soon as I started watching more of the undercards and started seeing this kid, I realized, like, this guy was it for me. And you, you mentioned, like, his debut angle, and that was such a big thing. He was still kind of a part or, like, assisting Final MTK for a long time. Notably, everyone kind of, at least out of the first four people, so we're talking Shingo, as you mentioned, BB Hulk, as you mentioned, Tozawa, and Yamato all had people that they were attached to, like they, it was a really smart way of saying, "Okay, Shingo's with Shima, BB uh, Hulk's with Magnum Tokyo." When uh, when Yamato debuted, it was right after uh, Yazushi Kanda returned. He was seen as actually they called him the second generation Jujo. like he was like straight in the vein. Akira Zawa was tied to Kenichiro Rai, and really the story of of Akira Zawa is also the story of Kenichiro Rai because. Kenichiro Arai invited him into the final days of Final M2K before they finally said, That's it, we're done with Final M2K. And they finally, like, Kenichiro Arai had the match with Misaki Mochizuki to end uh, Final M2K. He refused to join M2K, he said he was going to do his own thing. But this was like the first, like, basically until this excursion, Akira Tozawa's career was one of the most frustrating things to do because he was the youngest guy in the dojo. He entered the dojo the same day as BB Hulk. BB Hulk entered after serving in the Japanese Self-Defense Force as a Ranger. Akira Tozawa entered right out of his parents' house. So, there was a lot of immaturity issues. It's something that has kind of talked about later with, like, his relationship with some people who are who are not with Dragon Gate anymore. But it was a constant thing where he was brought up, he was sent back down, he was brought sent back down. He had a trial series very early on that he lost every single match, he was sent back down to the dojo... And he teamed with someone else who was a, a debuting trainee, who we'll never talk about again on the series of show, called Yukiono or Katsuo. And the two of them kind of were the backstage troublemakers for a long time. And this led to the two of them kind of being teamed up. There is a, and this is really a story of the time, uh, a, a luchador that was in Dragon Gate at the time named by the name of Evangeliz. Do you know Evangelis, Case? I know the name. I know I've seen him work, but I don't know anything about him. Well, his gimmick was that he was a Nazi stripper.
2: Yes, that is correct.
1: And they were kind of teaming with him, but like the big moment was, and, and like we were sent back down. Big moment was then, of course, he would uh, finally get the chance to enter M two K. Like, like they enter, like they presented him with the Yakuza jumper. He refused it because he said, "I have, I have my own plan. I'm going to start of my own, uh, my own unit that's about." having polish and that became a big thing because that was the the beginning of a of a stable that lasted for a long time called to and to bore his name but he was not really the leader because he was basically the young boy that always got in pro got in troubles and was seen as someone that was like far beneath other people in rank but basically up until 2008 there was, would be kind of a comedy stable like it definitely was done with like a kind of ton tongue-in-cheek thing because And Japanese culture, especially East Asian cultures, there is the idea of cram schools. Which case? Do you know what cram schools are at all, or have you heard of them? I've heard of them. I don't know anything about them, Mike. They're basically the idea of like a second high school that you go to to prepare yourself for college, and it's like very like you. This is where you gain polish. This is where you're able to do this, and they have like a certain uniform that is like the traditional Japanese young male uniform. So if you were ever to watch two thousand six through two thousand and eight. Uh, Dragon Gate and Saltzawa Juku, they would always wear something that was called a uh, uh, called a Gakuren jacket and Gakurin pants, which was like the like if you have seen like teenagers in Japan, like school, school Boys, you'll see this costume. They would have like a full like man- band in march that would come out with it. Uh, one of my favorite wrestlers and one that I always bring up whenever Jake shows up on the show, Koji Shishido was a part of this. He was the banner waver. Katsuo played the drums and Akira would. Do- would do the, the big chance. I would go like, ha, ha, Tozawa Juku, and would do his big dive off that. But the bigger members in that unit were uh, Kenichiro Arai. He eventually would join up with his junior. And Taku Awasa. This is the launch of the tag team I talk about all the time, Araiwa, which were a ch- early big tag team in Dragon Gate. And then foreign student, like the foreign exchange student, uh, El Generico. Because El Generico was in Dragon Gate because of the... Uh, the uh, Russell Jam project and because of Dragon Gate and Ring of Honor, so he did that there, but everyone else was doing well in the, in the pro... and Tozawa Juku, there was a Twin Gate run, there was a Triangle Gate run, but none of them involved a character Tozawa, because he still was a seen as a troublemaker, and the problem was is that his partner, Yukio no Katsuo, was a part of the stable, and he started getting a lot of weight, and he became very kind of... a charming fat man was his gimmick, and they... Made a karatezawa, they forced a karatezawa to, to gain a lot of weight, which he was not happy about. And, it, and it's talked about in like a figure four weekly interview with uh Jack Evans and Brian Alvarez. They talk about how basically at one point it seems like that he was being bullied and like basically force fed on buses like rice balls to get him to gain weight. If you've ever seen photos on his Instagram or Twitter, he'll post photos of the Metallic Brother things where he was legitimately about like 210 pounds or like 220 pounds, like he was a big guy. But eventually, he decided to slim down and decided that when El Generico and 666 wrestler Shinobu, who was an assistant at this time, won the Triangle Gate, that he would be serious and he would want to become a serious wrestler. So he had another trial series where he finally had success. He lost all this weight, and then he finally, at the end of 2008, brashly challenged the— Open the Triangle Gate champions of Masaki Mochizuki, Don Fuji, and Magnitude Kishawada for a title match between him, Araken, and, and uh, Taku Takuwasu were seen as the other two big people. So it was like the three original people of uh, Tozawa Juku versus the Zetterans. And they agreed, but they said that Tozawa Juku would have to disband if they lost. In case... I know you've, I've made you at some time watch this match. This was probably like Akira Tazawa up until really... He, this 2010 2011 like this period is the best match of his career
2: yeah it's excellent and i i don't love the tozawa juku stuff as much as you do just because it, it involves Arakin and awasa those are your guys um <laughs> but but this this six-man match is on another level it's really it, it's one of those I, tozawa has moments in his career where there's a definitive before and a definitive after he's one of i think really one of the few guys in wrestling that has like multiple like yes this happened and then this happened because of it guys and this is one of those matches on that timeline
1: yeah so they lost to had a breakup and then during this time period this was after uh, shingo takagi's first dream gate reign so we're talking late 2008 where him and awasa kind of kept on teaming with shingo takagi because they all were alone wolves and then they finally like pestered him and they decided to form the unit that was called Kamikaze. So Akira Tazawa was the reason why Kamikaze USA even happened, if you want to draw the line there. So it was the, it was them, and then Dragon Kid joined. Uh, Yamato would join after the end of the Deep Drunkers thing. Cyber Kong would be in and out. there, But the big thing about this time was, so Akira Tazawa was was now firmly out of the doghouse, but he was never really elevated. He kind of like stayed this, like Yamato, who came in after him, won titles cyber kong won titles and he wasn't even technically a dragon gate trueborn at that time he just was like struggling 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 until the match that we talked about in 2010 the loser is banished to the dark matches match because him and cyber kong were fighting they were just not having it and then after that happened this is when we had the moments you talked about earlier about shima saying i'm bringing a kirito with me over here and now we entered the when you say like things happen kind of in serious for kirito Welcome to probably the most uh, lauded, at least at the time, excursion of any Japanese wrestler in the 20th century.
2: Maybe ever. I mean, it's I, insane. Uh, I, that, that's, that's something we'll have to look into because I...
1: We might be it, doing a sub-episode on Tazawa and PWG.
2: I mean, th- this excursion literally changes his career for the better. It literally changes the company Dragon Gate for the better. I mean, it, it is a complete night and day from when he leaves to when he returns. And it just so happens that it all starts here in this opener with Granakuma and Tozawa against Quacksaw. And like I said, it's a fun opener. I gave it three stars.
1: I went three and a half, but guys, we're we'll going to deal with me when it, Tozawa's in a match <laughs> from now on. I'm sorry, guys. He is my favorite wrestler. So I, I, I work for bias, but the thing that kind of hit me in this match is Tozawa would have wrestled with some Americans, But the way that he just like meshed with all three of these guys immediately was kind of remarkable.
2: It's a really good night for the Chikara side. I've been critical of Quackenbush in particular on most of the episodes so far. We'll continue as we go along. Uh, One of the things that jumped out to me here was I I actually wrote down in my notes. I was like, damn, Jigsaw is really good. And I know I've said that, but it's, it's dumb that he doesn't have a contract somewhere because watching him and Tozawa and then him and Akuma, who go way back at this point, watching him mesh with the kamikaze side... It, it just jumped out. It's not like he did anything spectacular. I thought the most sp- spectacular move of the match was Quackenbush does basically a swanton bomb, uh, like a springboard swanton to the floor, which looked really good. Jigsaw just sort of does his normal stuff, but he does it in such a crisp way. And it's just like, damn, damn, this guy's really, really good. And like you mentioned, you know, Tozawa one match in, it's not spectacular. He's not a star. He's not really even over at this point. But you can tell he's good, and that matters to some extent.
1: Yeah, yeah. A uh, little side note: uh, Jigsaw was wearing his Vulture Squad tights during this match,
2: which were cool. It's he needs to wear the Vulture Squad tights with the mask because the I think Vulture Squad had a lot of flaws. The biggest thing that Jigsaw was unmasked for it, and it just did transform. not transform.
1: Transform. <laughs> transform. But
2: After the match, Kamikaze USA comes out. They attack the Chikara side. All I could think here was, I wish we had got it at, in some company other than Chikara, a John Moxley versus Mike Quackenbush singles match because I think Mox might have literally killed him.
1: Yeah, no, like, it's so wild, this post-match attack, because all Kamikaze USA comes out, and John Moxley just looks so much different than everyone else in the ring. Like, he's much taller. He's starting like early shows he was really skinny he's actually like starting to put on muscle and it's noticeable at this time he comes out like a long sleeve shirt in his tights and just looks like an absolute sleazeball shingo is wearing a polo shirt and basketball shorts it just was one of those things that just like when i watch i kind of just laugh at but yeah and that leads right into another dk yoshina video there's like 12 of them during this it's going to happen and that leads us to john moxley's match where he defends the fip world title that as you mentioned he won at the uh southern uh what was it It, Uh, the
2: southern stampede i believe southern
1: stampede he makes his first defense against john atlas he defeats john atlas in eight minutes 51 seconds with a crossface chicken wing so case i don't know anything about john atlas please tell me who john atlas is
2: well, Mike, you don't even know his damn name because it was Phil Atlas, my friend. I have John <laughs> Atlas in
1: my notes. Sorry. I, <laughs> if Phil Atlas, if you apologize, if you're listening to this, I deeply apologize. You are Phil Atlas. I apologize. I will do better in the future. Thank you for calling me in, Case.
2: It, calling you out or calling you in? Mike, you're
1: deconstructing by the seams right now. I hate to call you out, but oh. I want to make sure you're okay. No, <laughs> calling you in is a thing that's used that instead of calling people out in public, you bring them in. We're having a conversation. You're bringing me in here.
2: See, that's the thing about the Open the Voice Gate crew. Uh, we're not just a podcast duo. We're actually like a family, and we like to check in on each other here. As for the FIP world title match, uh, Phil Atlas, a.k.a. Canadian Destroyer, a.k.a. Black Bushi, spent years wrestling in the All Japan Pro Wrestling Undercards, a reoccurring theme with the Canadians on this show He last wrestled uh, in August of 2019, should be noted, in 2019 with Petey Williams in the All Japan Junior Tag League. He was over. I mean, there was clearly people there to see Phil Atlas. Yeah, all these local guys were over. To a point that it annoyed me, actually, because I (laughs) I didn't think this crowd was that great. But they really liked the Canadian guys, the talent— Maybe didn't meet the overness. I, I don't know. I mean, Atlas felt really bland. Mox, M- Mock should have come in and just simply destroyed him. Instead, of what happened is that Kamikaze USA, meaning Shingo and Yamato, came out, distracted Atlas, and then from there Moxley was able to tap him out with a crossface chicken wing. Very clearly, Gabe wanted to get Kamikaze USA over as killers on this show, and I understand that completely, and I support that idea, but it would have been far more effective for Mox to just tap this guy out with no help rather than having Shingo and Yamato come out, because if this was an EWR or a TEW game, Gabe would have gotten the note Shingo and Yamato were used too much on this show.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, something that we talked about earlier uh, in previous episodes about how John Moxley ages now. Um, John Moxley had a valet there that he just seemed to harass and torment. How was your opinion of this? It was one of those things that just felt so like bizarre that I couldn't necessarily make a decision. I think that's personally objectifiable. like, I mean, she, they didn't refer to her by name and he just basically tormented her during this thing. Like, how did this now 10 years later feel like to you? I, I will
2: say it felt very dated. I don't think this, this doesn't happen anywhere now unless maybe dj Hyde is running the promotion maybe this sort of stuff would still happen in CCW, but no one's watching so i'm not sure I, I will say to me the if there's a part of this that's offensive or that is really weird it is kind of the refusal to give the women names like yeah. that's that's really strange to me that they're doing that as for the way mox is treating these women and he's I mean he's putting his hands on them in a way that is is not pleasant I, I still I I want to see more of it before I make a definitive okay. decision because here's the thing it's I mean morally it's wrong if I saw somebody do this in the streets I would have a, a major issue but John Moxley is a character and John Moxley more importantly at this time is a heel so although it feels dated although it can make the viewer a little bit uncomfortable. That's why it's happening. And I, I, just, I just haven't seen enough to say, okay, this is weird, but I'm okay with it, or this is weird, and it's too much for me. And we're still at this middle point where we've seen it. We saw it on the Phoenix shows. We see it here. I mean, I, you know, Moxley, at the end of the day, is white trash from Cincinnati, I mean I know people like John Moxley. <laughs> I grew up in the Midwest. Um my my
1: family are John Moxley people. I understand him <laughs> on a very close personal basis.
2: Like I'm not advocating for anybody to do this. I think if you're going you know wrestlers today on the indies should be stealing from John Moxley, but this is probably not the thing they need to be taking for yeah. the sake of their career. But you know, I I'm someone that is really okay with you know, moral inadequacies and and evil being represented in you know art, whatever wrestling is, media will say I'm okay with evil being represented in media as long as it's portrayed as being evil, and I think that's what John Moxley's doing here. So it's weird, it's dated, but I I don't hate it. I mean, it's happening. I I wish they would identify the women by their name. I think that's so strange that they're not doing that, but. I don't I don't hate it yet, but I have the right to change my mind for a better or worse later on.
1: That's fair. That's fair. It's just an interesting thing is like John Moxley now arguably one of the biggest stars now in North American wrestling now looking back at really what was his start. This show kind of is the start of the next 11 years in wrestling in a lot of ways, you know?
2: We what well, we saw with the Phoenix shows, I mean that sets off what is the American Independence now. It's yeah. bizarre. I mean it it all begins With Davey Richards splitting and going to Ring of Honor full-time. I mean, that is the birth of the modern American Independent.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, another pretty big formula thing. After that, we have another Dragon Kid and Yoshino thing. Then we had Shima versus Jimmy Jacobs in a match that went 15 minutes, 48 seconds. Shima won the Meteora. And, you know, the crowd was really weird all night, but... The crowd was really into the Shima versus Jimmy Jacobs match to a level that kind of surprised me a little bit, but then also I remember who Jimmy Jacobs was at this time and who Shima has always been portrayed as in Dragon Gate USA. I
2: really liked this
1: match. Oh, like, it was fun. Like this is I went three and three quarters on this match.
2: Real, okay, so I went three and a half. We did not talk about this match beforehand. No. I thought I was gonna be like a full star higher than you because I I really enjoy non-gimmicky jimmy jacobs singles matches i think he's an underappreciated worker because his entire career has been built off of these hardcore matches and these bloody brawls and it will happen in Gate usa as we go along but i mean even to this day when i see him work at aaw like if jacobs is just in there wrestling a match i i enjoy it it's it's kind of the Eddie Kingston conundrum of when things are overbooked and there's too much plunder involved and there's a, too big of an attempt to tell a story, that's when I tune out with Jimmy. Mm-hmm. But this match, I mean, we're dealing with a post-prime Jimmy Jacobs and we're dealing with Shima, who at this point is still Taking recovering. it easy. Yeah, I mean, he's still recovering from major injuries at this point. He's right. clearly not moving around as well as he would have in 2011 or 2012. But these guys just have... Uh, move sets that work really well together. I think their moves play well and blend well with interesting and unique counters. And a lot of this match is built off of counters and guys getting hot. And then, you know, the other guy countering back with flurries of moves. I was all about this. I, I, I came in with high expectations because I wanted to make this point of that, you know, Jimmy Jacobs is actually a really good worker and they delivered on my expectations to a T.
1: Yeah. Like, i'll be honest there was a lot of hesitation in earlier episodes of jimmy jacobs in this promotion he's still been in one of the worst matches in this promotion's history but him and shima have great chemistry like you mentioned like their moves were flowing back and forth it just seemed like these two guys both got it at on this night there was like this really wild dive where it did not seem like Chima knew it was coming where jimmy does a house show dive over the top ropes And after that moment this match was fully on like you're absolutely right like we're still, like, Shima's still kind of gearing up, and he'll be gearing up really over the next 12 months to finally be the peak prime Shima of the 13 defense Dreamgate run. But, but for, like this, for, this, for a 15-minute match here, these two guys went back and forth. It they had, You had ebbs and flows in it. You had a crowd that, it worked getting the crowd in. Maybe it helped out that Jimmy Jacobs was in there. But Shima was over, and it just was a really solid match. And it was kind of the matches that... When I sat down and first started watching this, I was always have the back in my head. Is this going to be like a PWG-style singles match? Is this going to be like an AEW-style singles match? And instead, it ended up just being like a solid match, and I really enjoyed it. After the match, Shima goes to shake hands with
2: Jimmy Jacobs, and Jacobs kicks his hand away. This plays back into the opening promo that Jimmy Jacobs is not here to join a faction. He had been in Age of the Fall. He had been in Lace's Angels. He's seen... The peaks of factions, and he's seen the valleys. He's seen the depths below of what factions can turn people into. And Jimmy Jacobs wants to go at it solo, and he continues that mission statement even after a loss to Shima.
1: Yeah, and also Shima, even though he got deflated by the by their handshake, made sure that every every side of the ring did a who chant with him.
2: He's the man. I there is, I. There is a part of Shima that I don't relate to at all that I'm incredibly jealous of. I wish I had the ego he had sometimes. Had? <laughs> uh, Mike, you want to talk about the next match? Yeah, let's talk about
1: <laughs> the next match. So we had a match that I totally forgot this. Like, this was the first show that I was certain that I did not watch before or I had no memory of whatsoever. But we had Misaki Mochizuki versus Naruki Toy in 2010. In a small armory that looked terrible in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, they ruled, and I, I tweeted this today. How did people not go like, "Hey, I want to book Naruki do- or Masaki Mochizuki for everything in 2010"? This match went 14 minutes and 33 30 seconds. Masaki Mochizuki won with the Sen Saikyo high kick. But, case, we had to talk about someone before the match, and I'm pitching indeed, it to you.
2: Indeed, we do. Johnny Gargano, who we had seen on the Open the Freedom Gate show and the Generation Now. Was that a six-man or an eight-man elimination match? A six-man elimination match. Single fall. Single fall. Single fall. Oh, that's right. That's right. Um, Gargano has been with the promotion since the first show. He worked the first fray, the the bonus card, not the dark match, but the bonus card. And Gargano has consistently been booked in that spot ever since the beginning of the promotion. We saw him once in November, and we see him here not wrestling a match, but rather bringing gifts (laughs) <laughs> to both Masaki Mochizuki and Naruki Doi. Johnny Gargano came out and at this point Gargano this is his highest profile gig because he's I mean he's becoming the king of Cleveland at this point. He's a fixture in AA and AIW. He had just recently got him booked in Chikara for the first time, but Gargano still I not I mean Gargano's still unknown in the grand scheme of things. I mean he had worked one Ring of Honor Dark match, but had had no Real exposure. So, you know, he was a guy that Gabe plucked, said, Okay, well, he hasn't been a ring of honor. He's a guy I can build around. And the thing with Johnny Gargano that Gabe Zapolski liked so much was that Gargano could talk and that Gargano had some resemblance of a character at this point. And that was mainly, I guess, fueled by these Johnny Gargano power hour videos that he was <laughs> doing on YouTube. And And I am not familiar with the Power Hour videos. I've never seen one because they're all off of YouTube now. But in every single Newswire or almost every single Newswire Gabe has, he is plugging that Gargano has a new YouTube video. And it becomes very clear that this is a guy that Gabe Sapolsky wants to build towards. So we talked about at the top of the show. And there's going to be an influx of Americans coming into the promotion at this point. Well, Gargano wants in on the action. He comes out with a backpack. He does. Uh, he says he knows traditional Japanese customs, which is very funny. And he pulls out gifts for both Doi and Mochizuki. He hands Doi a, or I'm sorry, he hands Mochizuki uh, Mighty Ducks 2 on VHS. Mochizuki doesn't want it. He then hands him Angels in the Outfield. Mochizuki says no. He then has him Dustin checks in, which Mochizuki kicks into the air. So Gargano gives up. He says, OK, he's not a fit for veterans. Maybe he's a fit for World One. He hands Doi a stuffed animal. Doi says, thank you. Now you go home. And it's very funny. Just, you know, Doi being a better English speaker on the roster is able to have a little bit of a back and forth with Gargano. Doi rules in this. Doi was so good at this. Gargano turns around. Doi chucks the stuffed animal into the crowd. Gargano never sees it. And then Gargano leaves after after bowing to all four corners, which made me lose my mind. I thought this was a perfect introduction for Johnny Gargano officially onto the main card. Because from here on out, he's no longer... An undercard, bonus card guy. He's on the roster with this segment because he went out there and killed it.
1: Yeah, so I watched the Johnny Gargano Power Hours, and this was kind of something that built into the character he did there. Like The idea of Johnny Gargano, at least by the way, that he was portrayed here and portrayed on the Power Hours was a completely delusional person like lives in his own little world that he thinks that everything he likes is amazing. I mean, he said Dustin checked in was the highest grossing movie of all time in this segment. And it just was something that they really kind of have. And it's going to be such a big kind of thing really for the next until Ronin forms, the two of them are going to become, it's going to be very interlinked. The big thing is going to be though, later on down the road, the person that they kind of really haven't played back and forth with, but this was great. Masaki Mochizuki has no use for VHS tapes of Disney movies. And Naruki Doi, who did a, a great job of just playing a guy who was like, oh, I'm so delighted by this stuffed frog. You go now. You go home. <laughs> you go. And, and he's like, yeah, and he throws down the crowd. Naruki Doi understands com- comedy better than, I think, nearly anyone else in wrestling.
2: And Doi's, Doi's the man. I mean, he is someone that is able to cut a thoroughly entertaining Japanese promo, and I don't speak a word of Japanese, but when Doi talks on Dragon Gate shows, I listen because I'm entertained by just his cadence and his verbiage and his inflection. When he speaks English, he's just as entertaining. Mm-hmm. And this match, I love this match. Like... Oh, my God. It, this was... It, I, it, I was afraid that this match, for whatever reason, wouldn't mesh, right. I think, partially just being on foreign soil, and it's a match, you know, we I continue to bring it up because I'm genuinely impressed by it, but at this point, uh, there were two non-televised Mochizuki versus second Doi matches uh, back in Toriumon. They had two King of Gate matches, one in 2006 non-televised, and then one in 2008 that was televised, and now we have, you know, on their fifth meeting, their second televised and since then they had one in Drangate UK and then one in 2011 that was also not televised. So it's a fresh one-on-one Drangate matchup. And, you know, I don't know why I would doubt Mochizuki because he just was on another level in this match. I mean, this is one of those guys that is this, I mean, I gave this match four stars. It's a, it's a G1 style sprint. So more so the King of Gate style sprint just to fit within the theme of the show. i you know, this match is not going to make or break Mochizuki's legacy one way or another. But when you when you compile the great Mochizuki matches, he's got stuff like this for 25 years now where it's like, oh, shit, that was really good. Oh, have you seen this Doi match?
1: It's 15 minutes. They beat the hell out of each other. It's four stars. That's the Masaki Mochizuki story. Yeah. And, and it's something about like this match. Like, he, this, I've said it too many times, and this is the last thing I'm going to say is this one fit perfectly in with when they have these rare singles matches in Dragon Gate and King of Gate or whatever that this was tightly worked. Mochizuki breaks down Doi to start, and that kind of comes like a, a playing point for the entire 15 minutes, and it just was really smartly worked, and the last two minutes were just completely balls to the wall, which ended with Misaki Mochizuki kicking Naruki Doi in the head. Like, what else is there to love, people? Like, this is, this is the good stuff. This is one of the reasons why I'm glad that we're doing this, is going back, going to a show that, if I've watched, I have no memory of whatsoever, and finding a, a match like this that you would think that, Given the circumstances of the show, would it be kind of disappointing? And instead of coming out of this match going, this match owned. This match had a really weird but funny start to it. And then the match itself was great. And it's one of those things that Masaki Mochizuki only did select weekends in Dragon Gate USA. But I'm still stunned. And I know that he's someone that kind of does his own thing in comparison to the rest of the Dragon Gate roster. That people weren't like, hey, how can I get Masaki Mochizuki on Bloodsport? How can I get Misaki Mochizuki on a on a bola weekend just because like i i said it it was controversial i'll say it again misaki Mochizuki is the best 50 year old wrestler of all time and we had evidence of him doing this at age 40 just having a nothing match then it being a four-star notebook match
2: Mike, you said at the top of the show, you know, how are US Indies not opening their checkbook for Mochizuki in 2010? You could say the same thing in 2020. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's unbelievable. There, there's a moment in this match where Mochizuki, I've never seen him do this move before. He's got Doi. Uh, you know, typically Mochizuki does a thing where, he, like, puts the guy sideways, yes. like in between the the top rope and the, and the middle rope, and then runs at them and just, like, gives them a knee. Mochizuki did that, but delivered a spinning back kick which I didn't think you could <laughs> run into. Like, it doesn't physically make sense what he did because it he ruled. hit him at full, he hit him at full speed. Like, I don't know how he did this. The footwork involved to do that is incredible. And it's just the, the violence was on full display here because like, there's a match that happens later on in the car that, you know, had a lot of flips and it, that could be the main event or the semi main event. I'm not bearing the lead. There a lot of flips. I don't think they necessarily got
1: over, but the Canadian crowd responded to Mochizuki and Doi hitting each other really hard. Hey, I mean flips might defy the law of physics sometimes, but everyone knows what happens when you get kicked in the stomach. You know, Amen,
2: brother, Amen.
1: That, no, no, no. Like I'm, g- I was giggling while you were saying this because it's just such a ridiculous thing. Like if I had the, if I was going to put down the time to learn how to gift things, that would be like the first gift, maybe the last gift I ever make is Misaki Mochizuki doing. The, his corner spot once and deciding nope not enough and defying physics to do a running spinning heel kick and it was not just the fact that it was a spinning heel kick it was he was using a different leg to rotate around during this that was insane
2: again physically impossible I don't know how he did it
1: yeah it's people sadly we're going to come to a day where Masaki Mochizuki does not wrestle if you have an opportunity somehow when this is all over to go see Masaki Mochizuki wrestle go see Masaki Mochizuki wrestle that's all I'm going to say but, after this match, we had another backstage thing. a lot of backstage and just video cuts ins on this show. It's again, another way that the show feels kind of a little weird. Is with Chikara Suke gun, you can't really hear it, but they want to finish the war with kamikaze u s a and they want to have like a full confrontation match.
2: yeah, uh, not a good promo. Jigsaw is kind of yelling for no reason. He was very much like a parody of a pro wrestler here, but jigsaw was wearing the Chikara track jacket, which I have made fun of Mike Quackenbush on every episode. That being said, I would wear
1: that Chikara track jacket. I think those were the track jackets they made after Skida uh, Skyda supposedly <laughs> took the money. Cause those are like American apparel track jackets. They just like, like screen press, but yeah, no, those track jackets they look are ruled. good. They're ruled. And that led to the other local offer match. We had John Bolin and Tyson Dukes against Brad Martin and extremo. This match kind of went on forever. It was love and mentioned 12 and 26 seconds. Bullen and Dukes defeated Martin Extremo. And I think Dukes did something you needed a jackknife pen. And I didn't catch either. It was on Brad Martin, I think. I, Mike, I don't know. I yeah. think it was
2: on Brad Martin. I sure. don't care. This I, sucked. I hated this. So it's a Maximum Pro Wrestling Showcase. I, You know, the reason this show happened is because there was a, a partnership between the two. Scott Demore, coming from the Jeff Jarrett School of Politicking, I'm sure he convinced Gabe to get this on the main card, mm-hmm. but there is no reason this match should have made the DVD. That being said, before we break down the match, let's get into who these guys are, because I think it's relatively interesting. Brad Martin uh, was a guy who worked primarily great Canadian wrestling and Maximum Pro. He went on an All Japan tour in 2009 and wrestled in the following matches, a six-man with Minoru, Taro, and Toshizo defeating Brad Martin, Nishimura, and Shushi Kondo. That's on the 525 2009 All Japan show. And then in Corken Hall, June 10th, 2009, Masanobu Fuchi defeats Brad Martin in a singles match. I would like to see that. As for Extremo, he's a Canadian guy who worked King of Trios 2008. He is jacked. He is also, I thought, the best looking guy in this match. Mm-hmm. John Boland's really big also. He's a Scott DeMore guy. He lost to Tyson Dukes in a singles match in all Japan on January 3rd, 2014 in Cork and hall. And Tyson Dukes is a guy who's been around forever. I once watched him have a really good match with his I'm mentor, protege, or just good close personal friend, Michael Elgin. I once watched them have a really good match in ring of honor together. But Tyson Dukes is a guy who has been around forever and has never stuck anywhere. And, uh, Cruiserweight Classic
1: member, Tyson Dukes.
2: Oh my god, I forgot about that.
1: Yeah, he was in the Cruiserweight Classic uh
2: i you know whether it's personally or professionally i'm not sure but there's a reason that dukes has been around for as long as he has and has never stuck to one major promotion i you know i'll just leave it at that and i i just this match was an embarrassment i mean this was a shockingly bad match between four guys that just have no
1: business being on the show i mean extremo was fine but his name's extremo so i can't take (laughs) it seriously he was extremo and if you have a name like that i expect you to have a mask on no mask no, he
2: was kind of, I, he kind of looked like Frankie the mobster, another a Canadian little... wrestler. Like he was just a jacked
1: guy that I, I couldn't believe that was extremo. You know who he actually really kind of looked like? Who's that? Paul Robinson. He looked like Robbo.
2: Yeah, no, Mike Spears is onto something here. That's a good comp. He is the I... Canadian
1: Robbo, but not as entertaining as Robbo.
2: It's just, I, I'm annoyed that this match happened yeah. and that it happened on the feed that we had because if it was on the bonus DVD, who cares because we wouldn't have had to watch it. But this had this had no business being on the same show as a Dragon Kid versus Masato Yoshino match per
1: se. And you know what the most frustrating thing about it? This is the most overmatch on the show. By far. That drove me insane watching this. How, how over these four guys were. The kids in this match, like apparently there were kids at the show. Sat on their hands for 15 minutes of men kicking the the shit out of each other. Sat on their hands for a very solid Jimmy Jacobs and Shima match. Sat on their hands for a very fun Chikara-Styles tag team match. They lost it for John Boland, Brad Martin, and the Canadian Robbo. Just just insulting. Kind of insulting, isn't it, Case? Not good. Not good at all. We actually did not have a video after this match, or we might have, and might have been another Dragon Kid video. To be honest, they all started to run together. But then we had best two out of three falls. Masato Yoshino versus Dragon Kid. They were going to end their rivalry in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. Case they were going to have two out of three falls. Made a big point of the fact that Masato Yoshino was accompanied out to the ring by his tag team partner Rookie Doi. Dragon Kid, however, was brought was coming out to the ring by. By Shima and Masaki Mochizuki, both wearing Team Veteran t-shirts. Which, this is kind of a thing at the time. Warriors and Team Veteran kind of are somewhat allied at the same time because they were still together on, like, the generational war case. So, like, that's why that happened. Like, there still was kind of a big thing going on that the two of them are kind of allied but kind of aren't. But in this match, Masato Yoshino definitively won the feud. Two falls to one. Yoshino won the first fall with a lightning spiral. Dragon Kid won foul two with the Bible, and then, Dra- and then Dragon Kid submitted to the Sol Naciente in 19 minutes and 12 seconds to lose this match. Masato Yoshino won two out of three falls, And you know, this match was kind of predictable. You could kind of call the beats what was going to happen in this match, but it was executed well, and I thought this was for a blow-off match for two guys that I've been underwhelmed with at with their chemistry in the ring here during this uh, promotion so far. I thought this was a really solid feud ender.
2: I was left unsatisfied. Okay. Now, I I gave it three and three quarters. Wasn't a bad match. You know, categorically very good. But I thought the Untouchable Gate match, the the second show, I thought that was a better match. I thought this was on par with the Open the Historic Gate match. And, you know, a far cry below the six-man from Mercury Rising. And obviously, the still, still the match of the promotion, the tag team match from Open the Freedom Gate. Right. So... I just, I wanted, I wanted something a little bit more from this. And I was really okay with the first two falls because Yoshino won the first fall with a lightning spiral that, that came out of nowhere, which typically I would have an issue with that, but it's the lightning spiral. That move is protected. Yoshino gets the first fall. DK comes back, fights, kind of rolls Yoshino up with the Bible for fall two. And then right as we were about to hit, and I talk about this a lot with Dragon Gate matches, they, I mean, New Japan has this too, but I think the Dragon Gate style is a little bit different, where they are really about to kick things into next gear. We're about to... It feels like we're about to get these crazy counters and these big strike sequences. And instead, Yoshino makes him pass out with the Sol Nasiente which is effective storytelling, because, you know, Yoshino lost the first two matches and then went on a tear and is challenging Hulk for the Freedom Gate title tomorrow. Everything that should have happened happened. I just wanted the match to be a little bit better than it was. And I understand and like to a point that the finish was so definitive, but for a feud in there, I also want that great match, something to say, yes, this is the feud.
1: I don't think we got that with this. I'm going to push back on you saying this didn't kick the final gear. We had Yoshino kick out of a super Hurricanrana, kick out in a very not good ultra Hurricane Rana, and was teased the Dragon Rana at a time where Dragon Kid pretty much sealed it, except for certain people. I mean, to this day the last dragon rana he really did it was against pack and that's really kind of it i thought that this one kick that gear and the story of like the match was okay yoshino got the quick first fall on a very gross looking lightning spiral and, and then you have the idea and i thought commentary did a really good job about this talking about okay yoshino's at a fall advantage he can go a little bit more reckless here Dragon Kid needs to find a way to get this next fall, and he has to be more protective because that's it. The match is over. The feud's over if he loses in two straight. And with Gabe Sapolsky promotions, the idea of the two out of three falls match is now defined on, a lot of those were two zero losses. Like someone wins in straight falls. Like the Briscoes famously always would win two straight falls. And the idea that you had DK get the flash pen for that and then really kind of kick it into his final gear where there were some great kickouts from Yoshino for these Ranas, where Yoshino would, like, pop up, and somehow the camera caught his face, and it was basically... I think Yoshino was incredible at this, doing the I'm dead, by Soul still managed to kick out facial expression. And I thought that was really kind of a great moment on the match. And then he knew that he had, like, his stretch where he was able to kick into gear, went Torbolino Sol Naciente game, And I thought that that was really well done. And was it as good as... I liked the historical gate match a little bit more than you did, and I uh, much more so than the attachable gate one. Is it as good as that one? No, but I came away from this thinking that this was a very well-told story, and I felt like that they hit that gear, and I felt like that uh, Lenny Leonard and Jakarson did a great job of describing this match all throughout. So, this is gonna be funny, case. You said you were three and three quarters. Yes. I'm three and a half, and I love. I think I like this match more than you.
2: Well, hold on, hold on. Because I, you you spoke too highly of this match to give it three and a half. Would you pause for a second? I thought you were going to say four and three quarters. I mean, it seems no. like you're all about this match. And to your point, to your point, the finishing stretch was incredibly well done in the sense that, like, Drenkid kicked out of a lightning spiral on the third fall, which I was not anticipating. It should also be noted, your point about Sapolsky and the, the two out of three falls match ending in two straight falls. I assumed that's how this match was going to end, because I have also, I had not seen this show before, I thought Yoshino would win 2-0 just because that was Gabe's thing. But, I mean, Mike, come on, open your heart a little bit, we're in times of need, (laughs) if you're giving this match three and a half... I just don't think these guys
1: have great chemistry.
2: They don't, it's very funny that they spent an entire year wrestling each other, and they're still... I mean, maybe their pay per view match in 2008, which was kind of the catalyst for this global feud. Right. But they still, to this day, don't have the one Dragon Kid versus Yoshino match that you can point to. Whereas Yoshino and Kines, or Dragon Kid and Kines, obviously, as Darkness Dragon, like you can point to, you know many, many matches these guys have with other opponents. DK with Shingo, Yoshino with Mochizuki. They all have that match. These two have never been able to find it, and they've had more singles matches against each other than probably anybody else on the roster.
1: They would have more singles matches this year. Yeah, that is true. Well, I mean, they just wrestled each other in Japan for King of Gate as well. Yeah. All right, Case. I'm, I got my pencil out. Three and four. three and three quarters.
2: Okay, that's fine. We're at the same point, then. I, I,
1: I'm not going to go for stars on this match this that would make no, this like no, the I, best show i don't, I don't show think in this. you can I, it's this, yeah well, because you're really high on the Shima
2: Jacobs match, which which really surprises me. I think I had very high expectations for this, maybe because I've been watching a lot of two out of three falls Dragate matches lately, and they've all been awesome. And I was like, oh, these guys understand how to work this format. They'll kill it. And they did fine. I mean, it's three and three quarters. Relax. It was a good match.
1: Yeah, no, this is a very weird show that I think that we both loved for de- we both loved for our, our own reasons. After this match, we had a Kamikaze USA video of the Attack on Hulk perfectly setting up this. We have Kamikaze USA of Shingo Takagi and Yamato versus BB Hulk and the debuting pack. And Yamato got the win on BB Hulk in 23 minutes and 39 seconds with the Galleria. Firmly putting that the Dream Gate Champion is better than the Freedom Gate Champion.
2: Yeah, that's a that was a questionable booking decision for me i mean this match was a political nightmare because you have the debuting pack who i will call him pack on this show because you're here even though i still say Pac. (laughs) but you had you had the debuting pack who can't lose you had hulk the freedom gate champion he can't lose you have shingo who just lost a big singles match in japan to yamato but shingo also spent the first six months in this company losing he's now being booked on a winning streak and then you have yamato who's the dream gate champion i mean it is it is one of those impressive DGUSA matches in the sense that it's truly an all star tag, but you end up just, I don't know, you kind of shoot yourself on the foot when you have the Dreamgate pam- champion pin the Freedomgate champion. I mean, I, I would rather have seen Shingo pin Hulk or Pack. Or, 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 eh, I, I wouldn't have wanted to pin Pack. I, I think Hulk is probably the guy to take the fall. I just think Shingo would have been the smarter guy to pin because, you know, this is the Shingo versus Hulk summer. I mean, this is, you know, their 2010 world matches two months away. They're feuding currently in Japan, and there's plenty of Hulk versus Shingo interaction in this match, which is awesome. I mean, those two really go at it, and it's really, really entertaining because they've killed it their entire careers against one another. I just, I didn't like Yamato pinning Hulk, and then as soon as he pins him, you know, Lenny Litter notes, will the Dreamgate p- champion pin the Freedomgate champion. Like, I just... So early into a promotion, I mean, if this happens in 2012, maybe I don't mind as much, but here I was, I was really bothered by it just because I'm just surprised Gabe, who has always cared about championships and, you know, in Ring of Honor would say, you know, guys can do jobs on WWE TV as long as you're not a champion I'm just very surprised that so early into this promotion's history, he would have the Dreamgate champion pin the Freedomgate champion because they're supposed to be looked at as, as, as equals. But this definitively puts Yamato ahead of whoever is going to hold that belt.
1: Yeah, and I'm looking at this match and you mentioned the political implications. The next weekend would be the first anniversary show and it would happen right after Kobe World 2010. And that is a... Really important Kobe World Show for reasons we'll get into on that episode. So I kind of get why Hulk at this time would take this loss, and especially why they would keep Shingo Takagi fresh off of losing to Yamato out of the fall whatsoever. And yes, I guess maybe since PAX first weekend in, in Dragon Gate USA, after like having occasional weekends in PWG and in Ring of Honor, you wouldn't want to have him there. So I guess I'm a little bit more forgiving about this than you are because I kind of see it. And, but yeah, no, I mean, you already, kind at this point, you've now told your Dragon Gate USA fans, your champion is good. He has been a strong wrestler, and since he won the title, he went on in pretty solitaire. But he's not as good as the Dream Gate champion, and that would not change throughout the course of the company. Like, this was the delineation point, and there would never really be another moment where a Freedom Gate champion would go face-to-face with a Dream Gate champion without the thought in their mind going... The fans' mind going, oh, he's Dream champion. He's he should lose to the Dream Gate champion. Like this set this moment in the fans' mind. Let's
2: talk about Pac for a second. I kind of I went I did not do this intentionally. I just went ha- I did half Pac, half Pack, and <laughs> ended up in a weird hybrid of that pronunciation. So let's talk about Pac for a second. This show is promoted around him. He's the first talent announced. He's on the DVD cover for this show. You know, you can argue that the Maximum Pro Wrestling guys drew the house, but in Dragon Gate USA canon, this show was built around Pac, which I find to be very interesting because his relationship with Gabe Sapolsky leading up to this was not the best relationship. And it begins in early 2007 when Pac works the fifth year festival shows, uh, the two Liverpool shows, the FYF Liverpool and the FYF finale show. Uh, he works Roderick Strong in his Ring of Honor debut, which is a really good match. And then he works Drengate alum Matt Seidel on the FYF finale show, which is okay. At the time, Pac is a guy who's working WXW and PWG. And his biggest advocate in the States at this point is probably Colt Cabana. Cabana was a really early adopter into how talented this guy is. And, you know, Steen and Generico were big fans of him, but Steen and Generico had yet to really prosper in ring of honor. So they're not having any sort of booking influence. So it's cabana who convinces Gabe to book pack for the European shows. Pack comes over, has a, a good, but not great showing in July of 2007 for wrestle jam. PAC comes over debuts in dragon gate. Immediately seems to find a home there. And then in August, he comes back to ring of honor for a double shot for the caged rage and the Manhattan mayhem two shows. And things do not go as well. He wrestles Brian Danielson on the first night and Danielson essentially squashes him. I mean, this is what we're just about to hit Danielson versus Morishima in this really violent side of Danielson that comes out. And he kind of just destroys pack on the, on the mat and this match and eats him alive. And then the next night, Pack is booked against Davey Richards, and I'll read this from the September 5th, 2007 Wrestling Observer newsletter, where Dave says Richards pinned Pack in a match that flopped. Crowd booed the wrestling early on the mat, and they didn't like Pack's style. Richards dressed like Benoit circa 1996, and that led to Benoit chants. That's irrelevant. I just thought that was funny. Pack botched a few moves after the crowd. Uh, after and the crowd was already in on him. Richards used the tombstone and an arm lock for the win, but it was the one match of the weekend that didn't work. So for Pac personally, if you've ever listened to his Art of Wrestling episode, and if you haven't, I recommend you do. He took this super personally. He's a guy that, you know, I don't know what he's like now post WWE, but the, the rep he had going into WWE was that he was the super sensitive, really shy, not confident guy. He was really rattled by this Ring of Honor weekend. But luckily, a few weeks later, he was back in Dragon Gate. He essentially became Matt Seidel's replacement because Seidel was signed. Pac became the Gaijin with all the focus. And from 2008 to 2010, where we are now, Pac spends almost all of his time in Japan becoming the guy, the foreigner in this company. He hardly works any independent dates, and when he does, he's working PWG and WXW primarily, but Pac, more so than anybody else, is the test case and the example of here's what happens when you tour Dragon Gate. Here's a guy that came in that weighed nothing. I mean, 100 pounds, soaking wet, didn't have a look, didn't really have charisma, but had raw ability. And you see him here two years after he's been with the company full time. He has muscle. He has a look. The charisma is not quite there, but it's coming And on top of that, he's a world-class wrestler. So it's a really nice triumph story for Pac. He has a great showing in this match. All of his stuff looks good. All of his stuff connects with Shingo and Yamato. I love watching Shingo wrestle Pac. It's something that won't happen in the modern day, but it's maybe my number one man I wish that match could happen because both guys are still at the top of their game. But it's, it's a nice story for Pac. I look forward to him... Being in and out of the company for the next few years, because whenever he shows up, he has my attention.
1: And if anything, you might have undersold his importance to Dragon Gate as the top gaijin. And it's something that really came about because of DGUSA. And one of the primarily, one of the few successes of DGUSA was it brought in people like Ricochet, brought in Rich Swan, brought in Brody Lee for a little bit, brought in Johnny Gargano. Maybe not Johnny Gargano. But it brought in all these people. And he really kind of took charge of people who came into the company. Ricochet has talked about, like, oh, I went over to Dragon Gate. Someone like Shima really helped me. But the person that really, like, sent me, like, you should do this, you should do this, and, like, kind of instilled a work ethic in a way was Pac. Like, Pac was like, hey, you need to do this. Like, work out. You need to watch what you eat. And he kind of became this leader and focal point if you remember last year when we were talking about in 2018 when we we're talking about pack there's a reason why like it he's treated as such a figure within dragon gates and the dragon gates fan base he there are stories about like how much he values this relationships how much he basically in a lot of ways dg uk kind of happened because a little bit because of him and how he took like a leadership role there and for him having like this weekend after like the story he told like he did do appearances where pwg really was the place in the states where he had any sort of footing before dragon gate and it just was like having him here and now we kind of have another figure we talked about johnny gargano earlier we've been talking about john moxley we still have jimmy jacobs around but we have a guy that whenever he comes in he's treated as like such a big deal and i think that's something that's really remarkable about this match
2: well, he's treated more as a Drangate proper talent than an American import or, or a foreign import, rather. I mean, he's treated in the same vein as a Shingo or a Yamato. I, you know, really the only person not on his level is Shima, because you know Shima, and they really hammered at home here is is the Dragate icon, and he's the guy, you know. But everybody else is on a tier below him, Pack included, and, and you know, briefly. Yeah, your point about Ricochet is entirely correct, and I've said this before, and I will continue to say it because it, it factors into current-day wrestling quite a bit, but if you look at Ricochet in December of 2010 and just the way he looked, the way he wrestled, the way he acted, he spends all of 2011 wrestling Pac, and by the December 2011, Ricochet is an entirely different human being, and it's for the better. And then finally, you know, when Pack got cut from WWE, people that don't know, and I'm not criticizing them for not knowing, but, you know, the the basic online fan was saying, oh, he's going to end up in New Japan. And we knew all along, you know, you and I would talk about it, you know, our other Dragon Gate fans would talk about it. If he was going to show up in Japan, he was going to show up in Dragon Gate. And he did, and he dominated, and he won the Dream Gate champion. And it's easy to forget now, because, you know, even though there's, you know, really no shows, or at least no shows with fans, Pac- Saved the company from a creative lull, and has now helped lead them into a future that is really, really exciting for current-day Dragon Gate. And unfortunately, it's been delayed by just otherworldly happenings that are far more severe. I'm not worried about wrestling booking ideas being lost, but it all—this entire era—is going to begin in October of 2018 when Pac showed up back at Corkin Hall and reemerged. As the top guy in Dragon Gate. And a lot of that begins with this open the Northern Gate show and seeing that Pack could connect on a global level with a larger American fan base. That leads him obviously to NXT to a WWE run that, you know, it's a shame. I mean, I'm glad it ended, but it's a shame it ended the way it did because he was the only guy keeping me watching wwe programming for a long time and when he left you know i i have seen a few nxt matches since and a few minutes of the main roster here and there but i don't watch it anymore because a guy like pack should be prospering in the biggest wrestling company in the world and when they can't figure that out i have no interest i have no interest as for this match just to circle things back around four and a quarter stars for me i yep. love this main event four and a
1: we, we came together at the end four and a quarter <sighs> man there that's why i like you mike there you yeah, go there we go uh other things of note something that you said that made me want to go look here's how much of a big deal pack's going to be treated in this company we're gonna go i'm fast forwarding us ahead to actually we're go the, the next the next time that he's on the losing side in a dragon gate match dragon gate usa uprising 2011 june 4th 2011 i don't know if you i forget if you lost the fall or not but the first time I, that I was
2: going to say I know that I know that match I don't know the result but I guarantee he does not take that
1: fall the first time I believe he loses a fall September 9th 2011 chasing the dragon in your neck of the woods Indianapolis Indiana Captain's I love fall that show. Yes yeah. I love that match too the first time I, th- I believe he takes a fall in Dragon Gate USA so PAC is I know we talk about like who's going to be like the American stars and how they have their their four people that now they were moving to this new era enter the era of pack because pack in a lot of ways is going to be very emblematic of this era he's going to be around the title scene both the dg usa title scene and the dragon gate proper title scene in dragon gate usa and there's just things about like how this like they had like this big stakes moment where you have hulk getting dive bombed by yamato getting destroyed by shingo takagi and then he tags in pack and Pac's perfect. Pac looks the part. He's every per. He's every bit of the formed wrestler that we have now seen for the last nine years. And he's the curl There he does this spaceman a Fosbury flop dive that still to this day, like I watched the, the show today, and I was like, that is something special, and, it, and it's something that I think is so unique to this promotion at the time because he does still do some uh, PWG appearances. He does his UK appearances. But this, if there was a promotion that really got him signed to WWE, it was DG USA. And it was remarkable there. Other funny note, uh, Jimmy Suzuki, who now runs the, the, uh, uh, just like a really weird promotion that brought over a necro butcher this year, Tokyo Championship Wrestling, was was taking photos of this match. And this show, Case, for a show that neither of us remembered, it had some highs and it had some lows, but after, like, a WrestleMania weekend where we had what I thought was the worst show in the company's history at this time. And then a show that had some excellent matches. Top to bottom, like, this might have only been in front of 200 people, but Case, this is a show worth going out of your way to watch.
2: It's a really good show. Uh, I should note real quick, the the last thing that happens right. on the DVD is... Masada Yoshino is talking to a member of the Japanese press, which is just, it It makes it look like a high school sport. Like it mm-hmm. just, I understand what they were trying to do, but again, optics, it just looked bad. Jimmy Jacobs walks by. Yoshino says, uh, will you help me defend Hulk against Kamikaze USA? Jimmy Jacobs says he's tired and walks away. And then John Moxley comes out of nowhere and attacks Jimmy Jacobs. And then Mox has a line to end the show that kind of shows just that John Moxley's on another level. He attacks Jacobs and Mox says, I keep score. That one's for Brian. Tomorrow night will be for me. And then the show ends. And it's a, a powerful way for the show to end with John Moxley once again standing tall. As for what you asked me, as for the show. Yeah, I mean, a show with Mochizuki versus Doi, and then the Takeyama versus Hulk and pac man event is worth watching and then you throw in dragon kid versus yoshino jacobs versus shima and that really fun Chikara tag opener like this is a really good show but it feels so vastly different than historic gate or untouchable gate or one of these shows that had just a red hot crowd in front of it there was this real excitement about dragon gate usa a year into the promotion, that excitement, like it makes sense that it's worn off. And we see that with every wrestling company, but for this show to take place in front of such a dead crowd in an armory that just sucked up any noise that was being made. It's, it's a very good show that is not at the top of my list of recommendations, even if there were really great matches on this show, if that makes sense.
1: No, no, that's entirely makes sense, especially in comparison to how hot the crowds were in Philadelphia. Like this is a weird show that only cared about its local people because this is how that show happened but there was enough there that i think there's enough that if you're someone watching along with us in this series there's enough for you to sink your teeth into but it's one of those shows that kind of sticks out to you after the fact uh should we run down the card for the show that's going to happen the next day dg usa uprising before we go
2: yeah, I can breeze through that real quick as I pull up the card here because I just accidentally pull up the wrong card. But no, May 8th, 2010, we're going to see Masaki Motuzuki take on Akira Tozawa in a singles match. Tyson Dukes returns to wrestle Kamikaze USA Granakuma. a no DQ match between Jimmy Jacobs and John Moxley. Pack will return, this time with Naruki Doi to take on the Chikara Sekigun of Jigsaw and Mike Quackenbush. CK1 Warriors, Shima, and Dragon Kid are going to wrestle Shingo and Yamano. I'm really excited to watch that. And then the main event, the Open the Freedom Gate title match, BB Hulk defends against Masato Yoshino.
1: I mean, that's a, that's a show that I feel like, again, don't remember much about it, but there's a lot that 2020, Mike, is... There's a lot for me to stick my teeth into, including... The one person I think has the best chemistry out of anyone with Masaki Mochizuki. That's my boy Akira Tozawa.
2: I'm really excited to watch the show. I've never seen it before.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm looking at the total card about stuff that was not on air. Chris Chambers and Michael Elgin defeat uh, Kevin Crisis and uh, Mike Rollins. And then we have an eight-way fray with someone that I know is going to pop up on the show that not going to have any spoilers there, but the, the fray does come back and it does have someone that now more so than ever in 2020, this person's an important figure. So this is going to be an interesting show that we're going to cover next week on Rewind and Rewatch.
2: Indeed so. Uh, this brings us to the end of the episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at underscore in your case. You can follow the Open the OpenTheVoiceGate account at OpenVoiceGate where Mike and I have been tweeting a lot more lately. And Mike, where can the people
1: find you? I'm at Fujiheya. Spelt spelled like Don Fuji. I'm keeping on keeping on there. Uh, one thing I want to do just because of the way that we schedule these things and the way that we tape these things, it kind of popped up between when you've done this and when this goes out. Check out the episode we did with uh, Dragon Gate J that would have been two weeks old at this point, but was last week when we were recording it. One of my favorite people I love when we get a chance to sit down and talk with J, and he was very gracious with his time. So please go check out that episode, if only because if you haven't listened to this yet and you're still listening to this show, I'm wondering why, but just as my last heart cell it's a show about exorcisms a show about a show about people who only write at the middle school level and a show about train enthusiasts
2: i will say this before we go listen to the interview with jay and then go watch dead or alive 2012 and specifically the main event and then you'll (laughs) you'll understand why i'm telling you to watch those two things in order after that uh the podcast with jay is It's my favorite show I've ever done for the network. Uh, I'm thrilled I had the opportunity to do it. As I told Jay, I've probably read his writing every day for seven years now or close to seven years. And it was my first time talking to him on a podcast. It was awesome. It was a really cool experience for me. So that show's out there, and I hope you guys enjoyed it.
1: Yes, and I hope you all do too. It's always like just talking with Jay and talking with you in that episode. It was one of the more fun things that – I've ever done podcasting, and that's why I've been been—I've not just been doing the, the heavy sell the here. I've done it on my other shows as well. But that's going to do it for us. So for Case, I'm Mike, and we'll be with you next week for Open the
0: VoiceGate Rewind and Rewatch. Take care, everyone. On May 5th, Dragon Gate presented its Dead or Alive 2010 event to 7,000 fans in Japan. Nine members of the roster then boarded a plane and flew over 12 hours to Detroit. After crossing the border into Canada, they were exhausted and beat up. Sometimes new markets work, sometimes they don't. There was a sparse crowd for the Open the Northern Gate event just a few hours later in Windsor, Ontario. The Dragon Gate wrestlers could have phoned it in. They could have gone through the motions. However, this is not the work ethic of the Dragon Gate roster. The fans came to have a great time and their enthusiasm was contagious. It doesn't matter if there are 200 or 20,000 fans. There are no house shows in Dragon Gate USA. There are no B-shows in Dragon Gate USA. Instead, we serve the premium product every night. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping.